Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. You know, I think most Americans think that religious freedom is a, is a pretty simple matter, that, uh, hey, we all get to believe and to worship what we want, and the government you know, doesn't get to coerce us or tell us what to do. But I find, as I've been in religious liberty ministry for so many years, that the issues get really complicated. And even those who are passionate about religious freedom seem to divide on issues and fine points. Uh, but today's a case that has definitely divided the religious freedom community, a case called Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, you probably heard some discussion of it in the media, but... Uh, we at Freedom's Ring, we like to give you the, the inside scoop on understanding these cases. Our guest today uh, from the uh, Office of General Counsel of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, my friend and colleague, Todd McFarland. Todd, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thanks for having me, Alan. So, first of all, let's help our listeners understand the program that is being challenged here. What is the problem, the religious freedom problem, and, and how does this work? As part of the Affordable Care Act, the Obama administration required all employers, in fact, all health insurance plans, or employers who provided health insurance plans, to provide free contraceptive care for women, uh, for only for women. And as part of that, that included uh, birth control, what's known as Plan B, uh, in addition to oral birth control, also uh, other types of birth control, such as IUDs and, and other in, implanted devices. Um, this issue first came up, at least in public conscience, of course, in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, uh, you know, the craft store that had an objection to providing it, and they, of course, won. Um, after they won, the administration went back and rewrote the rules for religious nonprofits, or at least for part of the religious nonprofits, about whether they had to provide it, because certain religious groups, primarily Catholic, but not exclusively Catholic, object providing this to their employees, in particular for the Catholic entities, all forms of birth control. And so the administration came up with a set of rules and accommodations that they felt met the religious needs of the uh, Catholic organizations. Uh, but the Catholic groups and, the, and non-Catholics that were challenging this disagreed. And essentially what they had to do, they being the religious employers, was they had to fill out a form that they then sent to the government that then authorized the government to contact the uh, insurers or the administrators of the plans, of the health insurance plans, directly to provide this contraception to the employees. So, and, and it should be noted at no cost to the employer. Okay, so the government's plan that is being challenged in this case required the religious nonprofit to give notice to the government uh, we don't want to provide these benefits to our employees. We have a religious objection. Right. It was a self-certification that they would send. There's been a couple different versions of the form that have to be filled out. But basically, a self-certification says, we have a religious objection. We're not going to provide this. You know, this actually has an interesting parallel to a case the Supreme Court decided last year in a different context, where the issue of notice 
had to do with uh, accommodation of a Muslim woman wearing her headscarf and whether she was fired for because of religious discrimination or simply for violation of, uh, of a no-headgear policy. And the court, of course, as you and I both know very well, ruled that the, the real issue was the motivation of the employer, not whether the employee gave notice. But here, the religious institution is being required to give notice to the government, and the government is going to provide the benefits to the employees of that employer without any participation financially by the religious institution that objects. Yeah, just a couple of things on that. There is no financial participation. It's not the government so much providing it. It's no. So the government isn't sending the pills to the women or providing the IUDs or, or whatever the contraception is. What the government is doing is using the either the health insurance company or the third-party administrator to provide it. And, you know, the way this got described at oral argument, at least by the sides that were, were opposed to the government, was that the government was, quote, hijacking the insurance company or the administrator of the plan of the religious organization. Of course, the government saw it differently, but it is important that it's not the government directly providing it, but rather utilizing um, either the insurance company or the third-party administrator to provide it. Now, you know, I, the devil's always in the details, so I, I do want our listeners at least to really understand how the system works before we kind of do the legal analysis, so to speak. But what I'm wondering is, did the um, the nonprofit religious groups that objected, did they make the argument that, look, we're paying for it one way or the other, because it's going to be built into our insurance rates you know, whether it's listed on the invoice or listed on the list of benefits or not listed, we're still paying for it. So you're really not accommodating our our conscience objection at all. Well, that issue definitely came up in the negotiations. The way the government addressed it, and, and it has, that is not really part of the litigation. Now, the way the government addressed it is that they are, the government is is encouraging or paying for it through, um, it gets complicated, but it's through the exchange fees. There's various fees and so forth that, that insurance companies have to pay to participate in the exchange. And so what the government said was, well, we'll fund you, I think, at 110% of your cost by giving you rebates, and you don't have to, you have to pay less than the exchange fees. So there is a mechanism by which the insurance companies, and then for the third-party administrators, there's a different mechanism. But the government was able to find a different set of money uh, to to pay for this. So the argument that you know you're right. I mean, you know, like this, you know, this is just going to be built in, even if it's not on the invoice. The government has addressed at least enough that it wasn't in the U.S. Supreme Court case. Okay, so the religious employers who are before the Supreme Court, they're protesting having to fill out this form and send it back to the government. Yeah, and what the religious organizations say, and you know, and this is the part where a lot of people uh, have considered this to be a stretch too far, and it's not necessarily, you know, it's something that takes a little bit of understanding to, to get through. What they're saying is this makes us morally complicit in something that we that we think is wrong. So it is just like it is wrong for us, we believe, to provide this contraception by filling out this government form and authorizing the government to do this. Uh, we're complicit in a moral evil, and, and that violates our religious beliefs. 
what the courts below said was, well, no, it doesn't violate your religious belief uh, because they're basically rejecting the complicity argument. And that is the issue that at least the Seventh-day Adventist Church and some other organizations were most concerned about. And that is, does a government, does a bureaucracy, does a federal judge get to decide what does and does not violate one's religious belief? Now, that is a different question than whether or not that person wins or not. Uh, there have been plenty of cases in which the courts have simply said, yes, your religious belief is being uh, infringed upon and, and imposed upon, but that's just the cost of citizenship, and, and you know we've got more guns than you, so you've got to do it. Well, um, so this is a very helpful discussion, because uh, I think what would be helpful for our listeners is understanding how the burdens of proof work in this kind of situation. I'm assuming this is also like the Hobby Lobby case. They're invoking the provisions of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? They are. That in the First Amendment, but it's really what, yeah, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or what is often called RIFRA. So why don't you explain how, you know, the uh, compelling interest, least restrictive means analysis required by RIFRA would apply in this situation and, and what kind of the, the debate is? If you're claiming, if you're trying to invoke, you know, this constitutional or statutory protection, the first thing you have to show is that your religious belief, your religious practice is being, quote, substantially burdened. So that's the first step. Now, I'll come back to that in a second, because that's really, at least at the lower court level, where everyone got hung up on. But assuming you can show the substantial well, burden. Well, no, let me just, real quick, yeah. um, what you expressed earlier about the church saying we're morally complicit in this conduct, which we think is immoral, that would be a substantial burden to make them violate their own faith. That's what a lot of people thought. Unfortunately, the Court of Appeals below said that it wasn't a substantial burden. They said that, that you know, filling out this piece of paper, you don't have to provide the contraception, you're not paying for it, you are not morally complicit, therefore there is no uh, substantial burden. So because you're just filling okay. out a piece of paper. But even if a court says, okay, we'll grant that maybe this is a substantial burden on your faith, that's not the end of the analysis. Where does it go next? It is not. The next analysis is this is there a compelling governmental interest? And so is, is there really a compelling interest that the government has here? And that of course gets to how you you know how you phrase it. And the compelling governmental interest here is providing, of course, contraceptive to women and promoting women's health. And, you know, you can easily usually make a pretty good argument that promoting women's health is, you know, there's a compelling governmental interest there. Okay. But, but the next part of the test, and lawyers love their three-part tests, you know, is this the least restrictive way? It's like, okay, you want to provide protect women's health, you want to do that providing contraception. Is there any other way you can do this? Without and, substantially burdening the religion. Right. Without burdening someone's religion. And that is where most of the time the analysis actually begin, is. The courts below, none of them really ever got to the substantial burden, at least the ones that ruled against the religious employers, because they, they stopped at, at substantial burden. The reason is, is because you can think of a whole lot of ways that the government can provide contraception to women that doesn't require them to use an employer's health insurance plan. For instance, the government could 
just provided directly. They can say there's a new public benefit. And women, if you want contraception, you know, come on down. You can get it. And, and there's a whole lot of ways that the government could provide for uh, providing for women's contraception without... Well, all right, but let me stop it. you there, Todd, because... Um we have this Affordable Care Act. We've got private insurance companies. We've got these insurance exchanges. And the vast majority of women who do have access to health care, because not everybody has access in this country, but the vast majority have access through one of these existing means. Right. And there are a small number of women who are employed by these religious organizations with objections how would the government identify how to provide the benefits to this group? Sure. There's a couple of different ways they can do that. And, and one of them is the government could communicate with the women directly, as was pointed out in some supplemental briefing. The government has all of the information. You know, they, they have, that has to be submitted and so forth as part of the normal tax, uh, you know, just paying income taxes, and the employers have to submit this information as part of their payroll taxes. So the government could identify them through the regular tax process. They could also, you know, provide for, you know, the women could sign up for the benefits. So they could make this available and say, you know, if you're not getting through your employer, you know, just like Social Security or a lot of other benefits, you know, you need to come and sign up for it. And so there's, there's several different ways that women can be made aware of it. What the government has argued is that they want that, that yes, that can be done. The government says it's important to be seamless that women don't have to undertake any additional work to get this benefit. Uh, and that's where, at least at oral argument in the briefing, that a lot of this discussion is broken down, is whether or not it be seamless or not. And the amazing thing, we're running out of time here, Todd, but the amazing thing is the Supreme Court, instead of just issuing an opinion, basically sent the case back to the parties and said, you guys better work this out. <laughs> right, exactly. So... Stay tuned, folks, and we'll see what happens with this very important case. Our guest today, Todd McFarland, and this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>